I'm Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. There is no substitute for walking a mile in someone else's shoes. There is no substitute for listening to and including people with different lived experiences in decision-making. And there is no way to achieve equity without leaders working to overcome barriers and to take risks. Sarah Rotenberg is one such leader. Sarah self-identifies as a disabled advocate. She hails from Toronto and is a DPhil student in the Newfeld Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford, where she studies as a Rhodes Scholar. Sarah has worked on a diverse set of issues, ranging from access to vaccines to public transportation systems. She has overcome obstacles and is helping build a more equitable and accessible world, one project at a time. Please hear her story, her insights, and maybe approach your work, whatever it is, differently. And let's also grow our expectations of what good government should look like. Okay. Thank you for joining me, Sarah, and welcome to At Risk. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today, Jerry. Sarah, how did you come to identify as a disabled advocate, and what does that mean to you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So um, I was identified as disabled from a young age um, and received a wide array of supports um, throughout my life. Um, And at the age of 18, I decided to move to Singapore to go to university um, and had never really encountered barriers because of my disability, um, but started to in the educational system there. And uh, to the point where I um, decided to leave university for a bit. And so learning about this inequity in education firsthand really made me see that, you know, the world isn't so accessible to everyone. And I was fortunate to live in a country and society that valued accommodations. Um, and so this passion is really personal um, for me and really made me think of how I could uh, use my experiences as a disabled person to improve advocacy around the world. Um, and so that's that's something I, I'm really keen to do um, and to sort of just uh, move forward with this. Yeah. And so just tell me a little bit about your experience in Singapore. Um, I'm sure you raised the issue. What was the response from the university when you requested accommodations? Yeah, it was um, it was complicated. It was a new university with um, lots of of tremendous benefits, but also just different um, standards and rights around um, inclusion of people with disabilities. And so, um, it was a real learning moment for me as an advocate, um, trying to frame my perspective and um, my rights, as well as balance that with some different uh, cultural interpretation of what disability means. Um, And so it really expanded my view and made me want to continue working on disability advocacy. Excellent. And so what would you say kind of the overarching goal of your advocacy is? 
Yeah, I think that my experiences have shown me that there's a lot of common sense, low cost, but high impact things that can improve accessibility for people with disabilities and ultimately make our society more inclusive. So a great example of this is I uh, had the great privilege of working in India, um, working on how the Mumbai Metro, which is one of the large world's largest development uh, projects in the world, um, where they're building about 300 kilometers of metro uh, and trying to work with them on how to be more accessible, how this could be a tremendous opportunity to just uh, have universally inclusive transport in one of the most largely or densely populated cities in the world. Um, And so one of the simple things to do this is to have consultations with people with disabilities. Ask what needs to be accessible, how the designs are um, could be improved for accessibility. Um, and that's just a simple thing that has a huge impact uh, for a lot of people. And so I think that trying to build this into our work and create a culture of accessibility as part of becoming a more inclusive world is really important. So... You know, uh, for forgive my ignorance, I would have thought something like, you know, large transit systems that there might be, you know, a community, uh, it, you know, a global community around the world that would share, you know, best practices and, you know, uh, experiences with designing symptoms, uh, sorry, systems. But it sounds like you're, you're saying like the, the Singapore or, or the system in India didn't even think to kind of reach out to other transit systems? Yeah, they had a lot of consultations with other transit systems. um, And there are definitely some great networks um, that really work on, you know, best practices in transport. But accessibility is one of those things that, you know, if there isn't someone in charge of it or a focal point, um, it doesn't necessarily get implemented. And so there's a huge need to sort of have accessibility leadership or have it sort of embedded into the culture to make sure that it happens in anything from a health system to a large transit system, an education, uh, educational institution, what whatever it is, um, it, there really needs to be a, a focus on accessibility. Mm, that strikes me as a really important point, uh, that, that idea of ownership, responsibility, um, mm-hmm. culture, Right. You know, leading the culture um, uh, that strikes me as something that's really, you know, applicable in many settings. Definitely. Yeah. So you had, you know, not the best experience um, at the university uh, in Singapore, but today you're a Rhodes Scholar. So how did you regroup from what must have been, you know, a challenging experience? Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. I think uh, second time's the charm is probably a good <laughs> good way to sum it up. But um, you know, I I think that uh, my experiences in Singapore really motivated me to go back to school. Um, I realized I really I I truly love learning and um, being in an academic environment, so it was the right thing to do for me. Um, and then I also had the great privilege of going to a school like Georgetown in Washington, D.C., where I had a lot of different 
opportunities. Um, so, uh, you know, I got to work at the Canadian Embassy in the Trade Department. Uh, I took a lot of classes on India, which eventually led me to go there for a while. Um, I got to make furniture and really um, explore the area of global health, which is what I studied there. Um, and so all of these things um, and different experiences that I, I was exposed to really helped me um, to, to go back to education and, and think about applying something for something like the roads. You know, I think so many of us have um, experienced setbacks, not necessarily to disability, but maybe other areas. Um, where did you find the strength to kind of regroup and, um, you know, uh, relaunch and, and kind of who helped you with that? Yeah, um, I would say my my parents, for sure. I, I definitely am very lucky to have just really incredibly supportive parents. So they definitely get a shout out um, and a, a community that was there to support me um, when I moved back home for a little bit um, and just took a different path. But I always remember when I growing up, my, my grandmother used to say that no means try harder. And so I think I just... Um, I grew up with a lot of resilience and, you know, I knew I wanted to, to get a degree and to, to really make a difference about what I was passionate about, which is health policy. Um, and so I knew that going back to school was like the right, the right thing to do, even if it was um, a little later than I expected. Well, that's awesome. I mean, kudos to, to you and, uh, you know, uh, thankful that, that this community existed for you. So, now you are a Rhodes Scholar. How is that helping you uh, with or supporting your advocacy? Yeah, there's a lot of ways that the Rhodes has definitely helped me. I think, firstly, um, you know, just the UK is one of the most disability inclusive societies in the world. It collects a lot of data on disability inequity, has a lot of academic excellence. So being and also a huge disabled community of activists. And so being able to live in the UK is such an immense privilege um, to be exposed to a culture that has, has really worked on accessibility and inclusion. Um, and then of course, being at Oxford as well and being in a like one of the top academic uh, departments for public health um, is, is an incredible opportunity. So those things have definitely helped. But I also think being part of, you know, a community of future leaders, many of whom don't work on disability, um, has given me sort of a platform to talk about these issues and, and raise it to people who might not be aware how their own passions and work impacts people with disabilities and how they can be more inclusive. But I definitely find that I'm, I'm so fortunate to be in a position of privilege within the marginalized group of um, being disabled. And I think this sort of duality of both having having been marginalized and then also sort of having academic credentials to make me taken seriously when I talk about policy um, has really helped me advance my goals. And so very, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to be in the UK and at Oxford and then also sort of have this community to help me advance my goals. Now, you have worked on a wide range of topics. It was something that immediately jumped out at me uh, because, you know, we live in a world that tends to push us 
uh, towards more narrow specializations, you know, deep, but narrow. And so I wanted to, you know, ask you, you know, what, what has allowed you to do that? Why have you wanted to do that? You know, when I was little, I was just so interested in the world. And, um, like, I always used to watch videos about different countries or read books. Um, and so I, I had this sort of curiosity about what went on. And then I also thought, um, I, I read the news a lot. And so I think seeing a lot of inequity made me think about, you know, how Canada, how I was so lucky to grow up there. Um, but that there was vast inequity around the world. And so uh, when the opportunity to move to Singapore came up, I think um, I really asked myself the question, if not now, then when? Um, because I was 18, I like I didn't have a family or um, <laughs> any sort of anything really tying me down to Toronto. Um, though, of course, my parents still live there um, and I'm very close with them. But it sort of seemed like the perfect time to explore, especially at a time when um, sort of global interest in Asia is, it's really important to have some experience there right now, given demographics and global power shifts. And so I thought it was, it was sort of a great opportunity that might not come again. And I, I absolutely loved it. Like I, I really value the experience I had there because I think it, showed me a lot about the world. It took me outside of Canada. It allowed me to reflect critically on my experiences. Um, and so I, it was a really great experience for me to move away at such a young age um, and just try a bunch of different things. That's excellent. And can you, have you ever had the experience where, you know, your work in one area has allowed you to see more clearly um, an, a, a completely separate and different issue? Yeah, I would say a lot of my work in India has really shaped how I view um, how I view health systems, even though um, not all of my work was related to health systems while I was there. Uh, but just seeing how... Um, how the the bureaucracy works within transport and how there's, you know, if a train doesn't come on time, it's a very different consequence than, you know, if a doctor doesn't show up to work. Um, but the, the, the sort of same systems and accountability that you see in different ministries um, when you're talking about something as complex as a transport system, um, particularly one that's under development, makes it really important um, to understand how a health system can evolve because it's not necessarily as um, immediate the impact. But we see right now, for instance, with COVID, when, um, when you delay surgeries, when you um, have health system capacity at the brink, how it impacts other aspects. And so trying to think of how we can be more responsive in our health policy, um, the way that you might be in a, a transport system has really helped help me think about um, my work on health policy. For instance, this is just one example, but um, it's, it's been super helpful to, to think about it that way and, and to have these different experiences for sure. 
Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned COVID-19, the the topic we, you know, yes. love to hate to talk about. <laughs> but um, but but you have really uh taken on a significant leadership uh here in Ontario. So tell us how, you know, where has your advocacy taken you during the pandemic? Yeah, I think we've all been um uh, just awestruck by the gross inequity in the pandemic. And I think this has been particularly true for people with disabilities. So back in March 2020, I was uh, fortunate enough to be working with the World Bank Group in their disability team. Um, and I've, I've realized in, in my work in the last five years that there's not, there's a lot of health policy people and there's a lot of disability people, but there's not a lot of people who do both disability and health policy. And so I, because I was working there and because of the pandemic and this sort of lack of crossover, I began working on some of the forecasting what some of the issues might be for people with disabilities in the pandemic. Um, so for instance, you know, how public health measures that we had put in place really disadvantaged a lot of people with disabilities or weren't even possible. So one example is, for instance, if you have a physical disability and require in-person care, you know, social distancing isn't possible. Um, and so what steps need to be taken to protect you? Or for people who uh, rely on lip reading, you know, wearing a mask has become a huge barrier in the pandemic. Um, and then also in the very early days, having access to information through captions or interpreters, which a lot of governments weren't yet doing. And so trying to think of how the World Bank could help through that. And then as the pandemic progressed and I started my studies at Oxford, there started to be a lot of studies, particularly from the UK, that revealed the inequities among people with disabilities. So here in the UK, for instance, you saw mortality rates that were three to six times higher among people with disabilities, depending on impairment type, than people without disabilities. Um, in the US, for example, you saw uh, that people with certain neuromuscular conditions and ambulatory ability were at 25 times higher risk of dying than people without. Um, and so this really made me think, wow, there's massive, massive inequity. This is a population that really needs protection and access to the vaccine. But when uh, a lot of governments started rolling out the vaccine programs or talking about prioritization, there was no mention of people with disabilities, no mention of accessibility. And so um, I used a lot of my work on vaccine accessibility in the past, um, a lot of work on accessibility and sort of my knowledge in health policy to start advocating. So writing emails, writing reports, um, and it most recently culminated in one of the Ontario Science Brief Tables report on how we could be more accessible um, in our vaccination program to ensure we reach people with disabilities who we know are at higher risk of adverse outcomes of COVID-19. Now, do we collect um, uh, this type of data? Can uh, you know how are we doing um, as a province and and a country uh, in terms of uh, reaching uh, people with disabilities with vaccines? That's an excellent question because that's one of the biggest problems actually around the world. It's not just a Canadian problem. Um, 
the, you know, in Canada, we don't collect data by disability status. And so that hampers our ability to, um, to really understand how the pandemic has specifically impacted people with disabilities. Uh, in Ontario specifically, we have some mechanisms to uh, create measures of disability to understand the impacts, but that is not often um, shared publicly, um, though ICES has started um, started to release that data. But what it shows is there's still inequities um, in reaching these people. And so um, if we can really work on improving accessibility for people with disabilities, whether that's, you know, having a accommodations person on site who someone can talk to, whether that's, you know, having, um, having at-home vaccination, we can really improve uptake among this community. Um, and that's, that's sort of the next step. But monitoring it is definitely key um, to sort of understanding and then creating strategies to address that. And if, um, if we did have better data, we definitely could, could be a lot more proactive in our work. Yeah, I think this is one of the, um, I guess, less obvious uh, costs of the anti-vaccine movement. It's so loud um, mm -hmm. and it attracts so much attention um, that I think many people uh, will look at, you know, the percentage of the population who remains unvaccinated and assume it's a choice. But I think what you're saying is there's still people who uh, may want a vaccine. We just haven't created the systems and accessibility supports to allow that to happen. Absolutely. There are definitely still barriers to being vaccinated, though we've we've gotten a lot better since April when people were first, people with disabilities were first eligible in the phase two of Ontario's rollout. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, reaching the last 25% and really going the, the last mile on a lot of um, reaching different communities is important, but particularly for people with disabilities who do want to be vaccinated, but, you know, if some people have to, um, you know, organize multiple buses, buses sometimes don't show up on time. It's specialized if you're a wheelchair user, for instance. Um, and so I think it's not, it's definitely not as easy as dismissing those who aren't vaccinated as anti-vaxxers, but more complex about how we can really support uptake um, in these communities for some of whom it's a lot more difficult to access vaccination. So has there been, do you think, growth in our understanding? You know, when people talk about the pandemic, um, for sure, and I think you said this as well earlier, you know, the, the inequities uh, in our world really um, were brought out in relief. But are we also seeing pathways to doing better? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, there's, there's definitely been some, some improvements. I think um, disability isn't something that often comes to people's mind, even though it impacts 15% of the world's population and 22% of the Canadian population. Uh, but I think people have, have started looking at the data and started to think, okay, how can we do this? And, and definitely, when I talk to people about accessibility and it's and they're not as familiar with it, they 
they then start thinking about how they can bring it into their practice. And I think that's an important cultural shift, right? Because you want people to think, well, of course, I want people to be on board with my cause, but also just um, being able to talk to people and show people, you know, accessibility isn't this sort of black box. There's a lot that can be done um, and that that isn't so high cost or complex. So a great example of this, for instance, is with the vaccinations, one of our main recommendations from the science table brief was to put an accessibility point of contact on all advertisements for pop-up clinics or other clinics and ways to get vaccinated. Um, because sometimes it is just, you know, you have a question, it's easily answered. So for instance, is, is the elevator working today? And that will make you go get vaccinated rather than not. Um, and so I think having these more conversations about accessibility can definitely um, bring it bring it into the forefront as we move into recovery and um, move forward from the pandemic. But I also think one thing that's that's sort of a barrier here um, is there's there's a real leadership gap um, on disability. There's very few of our leaders either elected or appointed, um, are people with disabilities themselves. And I think that when you don't have someone in the room or around the table who has that lived experience, it's very difficult to, um, to meet the needs of this large minority in Canada. Um, and so trying to figure out how, when we talk about you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion, how we can also bring disability into that conversation to make sure that we're addressing the needs of the 22% of Canadians who are disabled. Yeah, that's a really great point. You know, um, uh, I, I, my personal experience or my personal view is that, you know, during the pandemic and as we're hopefully coming out of it, um, that, you know, efforts around equity, diversity, and inclusion have really been lifted up. There's new mm -hmm. momentum uh, behind it. But having said that, it does require um, a lot of discussion around, you know, who, you know, who uh, is going to be lifted up by these policies. And, and, you know, quite frankly, sometimes people with disabilities are left out of the discussion. Mm -hmm. And the important thing as well is that it's so intersectional, right? Because there are intersecting systems of oppression for Black, Indigenous, people of color um, who are disabled as well. And so, just trying to work on these very important initiatives in isolation isn't going to fix a lot of the structural issues that we need to work on as a country. Yeah, and I think your earlier comments bring up another really important point, um, which is, um, you know, everyone tries to adopt a mindset um, of equity, diversity, inclusion. People want to uh, design programs and services and goods uh, to be accessible. But at least at this point in our evolution, very difficult to do without actually having um, a leader uh, present to, you know, really provide meaningful contributions to what, um, you know, good accessibility looks like. Absolutely. There's there's definitely, um, it's not something we learn about in school, about anything about accessibility practices. It's 
to be frank, it's not even something I've really learned about until um, my experiences in Singapore. But I think that there's um, a lot of work to be done around sort of the education so that we're creating a culture of accessibility, but then also, you know, really amplifying leaders um, with disabilities to ensure that their our voices are heard um, in important policy and, and um, governance decisions. Uh, recently in Ontario, um, the uh, draft standards for accessibility in healthcare uh, were released uh, mm-hmm. under the um, Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. Um, and those were uh, out for comment. And I know you have uh, written on the importance of training in uh, the healthcare system. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what your findings and learnings uh, were that came out of uh, that literature and study review? Yeah, so... Good training is is hard to come by in in the health system um, and for health workers, but there's a lot of different small lessons we can learn to make sure that it becomes sort of part of the culture of medical training. Um, so, you know, one of the main things is including people with disabilities in it. I think that's there's a great phrase um, that's often thrown around that's nothing about us without us. And I think that that holds true for training as well. Um, and then I think another part is ensuring that it's throughout the curriculum. Training is often like on one day you go to one lecture and there's a person with disability there. Or you learn about a disability and then that's it. But there's no real sort of continuum of learning and thinking about disability. And then the last part about it, I think, is is that's really siloed. So yeah. you learn about sort of the health implications of having multiple sclerosis, for instance, or being blind. Um, but you don't learn about sort of the social things that would make, um, you know, any would, would make a treatment plan um, or would make sort of how you perceive the world different. And so I think trying to think about um, how we can really improve training, um, both in terms of content, but also in, in how we work on it throughout the curriculum to ensure that we're, we're really meeting the needs of people with disabilities, not only their health needs, both related to their disability and other health needs, um, but more that we're... Um, really working on on the culture of inclusion within medicine to understand the social needs as well. And I would think that, you know, it's, I mean, not to be selfish, but, you know, it's an opportunity to lift all boats, right? <laughs> the more the more we yeah. start thinking intersectionally, the more we start thinking about the diversity of experiences, the higher quality the care that we deliver is. Absolutely. I, there's a recent study done in the U.S. that said, um, you know, only about 40% of physicians were confident to provide care to people with disabilities. And then I think it was also about 80% thought that people with disabilities have, have worse quality of life. And so, you know, when you have those perceptions 
um, about people with disabilities. There's no causal link, but at the same time, I'm sure it impacts how you deliver care. And so if you can, you can sort of change those attitudes, um, have really good policy in terms of accessibility and inclusion in the health system, and then also work on um, training, which I really see as like a gap in between, you know, policy and implementation, um, then I think you can, can really work on building a more inclusive health system. And I want to make sure that I'm uh, appreciating uh, the full conclusion too. So it's like, yes, when you're in the educational system, so you're in a faculty of um, health sciences, faculty of medicine, um, but it's through to even once you're credentialed and licensed, that, that, that training needs to continue to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it can't just happen once and, and think that you'll remember it for the rest of your life. It needs to, you need to continuous reminders um, to be able to do something like riding a bike, you know, you can pick it up again, but sometimes you need that reminder um, to make it, to make it happen and to make it smooth and effective. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's throughout the medical education, which I see as more continuous um, than just a set time when you're in school or in training. Um, you're, you're always learning. So that's, that's important as well. Yeah. And you mentioned the UK earlier, you know, are there other health systems that Ontario and other provincial and territorial systems can learn from? Where, where would you point people uh, to look for, for, for high quality training and a system that, that, that is designed well for accessibility? Yeah, the, on the training front, I think, uh, the UK is just starting to have some more, but there's definitely a lot of a lot of work to be done. Um, Australia has some mandatory training on intellectual disabilities and autism, um, but again, that this is all just starting up in more recent years. Uh, but Australia is probably of all the countries in the world has has one of the most um, significant ones. There's a lot of work being done in India as well. Um, we tend to think of only looking at high-income countries, but often low-income countries have, low- and middle-income countries, sorry, have, um, have really advanced topics that, that we, haven't, we haven't worked on yet. Um, so those, those would be some countries for training. And in terms of the health system, you know, there's, there's not one, unfortunately, that, that's really great, but some, some have different aspects um, that are really inclusive. For, so, for instance, here in the UK, if you have an intellectual dis- or developmental disability, um, you're invited every year for a health check um, because in the UK, they've found that there's a 20-year gap in life expectancy between people with and without intellectual and developmental disabilities. And so, trying to do health checks um, like just going to your general practitioner and, and seeing them for blood work and different things can help um, catch different comorbidities earlier um, and, and get them addressed. And so that's a really good example um, that, you know, with so many people without a family doctor in Canada, um, something that shows you could, you could possibly slip through the cracks. So that's just one one policy piece that could could definitely come back to Canada and and help for sure. Um, there's a lot of international examples on um, 
on different affordability mechanisms as well, because in Canada, while we have a universal health system, we don't provide a lot of support for assistive devices um, and so or pharmacare. Um, and so trying to work on that as well, especially as we, we head into a new government, can definitely improve um, how, how we're doing globally for people with disabilities. So during the pandemic, we obviously, um, you know, it highlighted these inequities as we've discussed before. Uh, many people say, okay, you know, you thought the pandemic was bad. Wait for, you know, uh, the increasing frequency of, you know, climate crises. Um, uh, the, the same people who bear the brunt of this virus. Uh, are also uh, going to be more adversely impacted by um, increasing uh, climate events. Uh, and I know you've written about um, or co-authored a piece uh, in Healthy Debate about uh, extreme heat uh, events. Can, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how should we be thinking about climate events and more importantly, preparing for climate events? How can we, how can we, protect and serve our populations well, knowing that this is on the horizon? We really need to work on improving our resiliency for natural disasters for people with disabilities. And climate and heat is just one of those areas. Um, so for instance, you know, this uh, it, when Canada was experiencing the heat dome, um, there's a lot of inequity that people with disabilities saw in the response. So often people with disabilities are left on their own to sort of manage the impacts of extreme heat. Um, but that's very difficult when you there's not very many accessible shelters um, to you know escape. Um, there's a limited public funding for cooling. Um, air conditioning is still seen as a luxury. And so um, for people who uh, live in poverty, that's not uh, an option for them. Um, and a lot of disabled people do live in poverty in Canada. Um, or just inability to leave the house because of various um, sensory impairments um, that make your house more comfortable. It's very difficult to then um, really address those in the midst of a crisis. And what it really requires is better planning. And so actually working on um, you know, improving the infrastructure of public housing to be more resilient to climate change um, and accessible, investing in accessible shelters or um, founding groups like in the U.S. There's a whole partnership on um, disaster preparedness and they have hotlines that specifically support people with disabilities um, to, you know, find accessible shelter, to find accessible transport, whether it's a flood, a hurricane, or um, ex an extreme heat event. And we, we don't really have those mechanisms in Canada yet, um, either from the government or privately to, to really ensure when a crisis hits, we're adequately supporting people with disabilities or other um, at-risk populations like older persons, um, low socioeconomic groups, et cetera. Yeah, and I want to come back to a point that that, that you made earlier. Um, uh, I used to work at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, and mm -hmm. um, when we would engage in disaster planning, uh, we did have... Uh, we, we 
engaged our, our committee that, that was focused on accessibility uh, into that discussion. Um, not all um, thoughtful design choices that heighten accessibility are expensive, but very <laughs> difficult to integrate them in the context of a disaster. Easy to do ahead of time, almost yeah. impossible to do in the moment. <laughs> yeah. No, investing in preparedness is, I, there's been so many studies that show it's it's so much cheaper. And it's the it's a very similar principle with accessibility, both in, in disasters and more generally, like if you are building a building and you consider universal design principles, it's about 1% more on average versus if you think, you know, when you, when you then have to go back and renovate it and either add a ramp, add an accessible entrance, have a hearing loop, um, or tactile pavers for people with visual impairments, those are quite costly. And so thinking about things from the start, I think that's a great entry point for inclusion and accessibility um, in particular. So this is the at-risk podcast. So I wanted to ask you, have you ever, you know, in terms of um, the you know, incredibly rich topics you, you've been engaged in uh, and studied and, and throughout your advocacy work. Have you ever uh, kind of used the either the vocabulary of risk or um, the, the mindset uh, of risk in, in thinking about these issues? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, recently we've talked, a lot of people like to use the word vulnerable, um, to describe people with disabilities or other groups that have been adversely impacted, um, but I think I think risk is a is a different one because you know it it actually doesn't have to be this way. Um, you know, if we really protect people and we we invest in things like accessibility and we um, make the world more inclusive, it's more a risk, but it's not an inevitability so much that vulnerability suggests. Um, and so I think that thinking about that is, and and trying to sort of frame it in risk and manage those risks um, can definitely be a useful tool. So we've just concluded a federal election. There is uh an Ontario election going to happen in the spring. Nova Scotia just had one. And, you know, there's been some crises uh, in leadership uh, in other provinces. What should we be looking for from our leaders if we want to see progress on greater inclusion of people with disabilities and greater um, universal accessible design? What do we need to hear from our leaders and what do we need to, what kind of changes or indications can we look for on the ground? Yeah, so I think there's three main things. Earlier, we talked about data. I think that as we as we move past the pandemic, I think all provinces really need to look at data systems, whether it be health, education, economic, um, and just really working on that as a goal to, to really bring Canada um into the, the forefront of global policymaking um, in terms of, you know, having the, the understanding and evidence to, to create better policies. And I think that should be a goal, but it has particular consequence for people with disabilities who, you know, often because we don't have that data, we assume the inequity doesn't exist, 
rather than actively working on things like accessibility. And so, you know, making that a broad goal, but particularly for people with disabilities will help. Secondly, I think we need to see some more inclusion. You know, premiers appointing um, people with disabilities to panels or, um, you know, advisory groups to ensure that we're really including the voices of people with disabilities themselves um, will we'll sort of push the inclusion agenda. And then finally, I think on the ground, we really need to see more accessibility. You know, I was a little disappointed in the, the federal election when I watched candidates um, and people I, I admired and look up to, um, you know, with no image descriptions on Twitter, with videos without captions. Um, and these are very simple things to add. Um, you know, there weren't transcripts for um, speeches. And so when we're not making it accessible to everyone, um, it makes politics a lot harder to engage with for a whole set of the population. And so I think that, you know, working on that on the ground in our day-to-day our -day practices and engagements with politicians definitely will help improve accessibility overall. Amen. <laughs> um, Sarah, <laughs> what's next for you? Ah, uh, that's the that's the million dollar question. <laughs> I think. Um, oh, if if only I knew. If only I had twenty twenty vision, like Canada twenty twenty. Um, <laughs> but I, um, you know, I just really love working on health policy. I love talking about accessibility um, in a positive way and thinking about how we can move forward. And so any role that can can allow me to do that and, and have impact uh, both for people with disabilities and, and also just inclusion in general um, is something I want to want to do and be part of. So um, I'm not totally sure, but, uh, but just want to want to be able to make a difference um, for people with disabilities. Sarah, we'll be watching. Thank you so much for your advocacy, for all you've already achieved, and for what I am 100% confident you will continue to achieve in the future. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure.